All right, we're back in the book of Isaiah this morning. One of the themes throughout the Old Testament that you see often is references to the hand of God, often speaking of, of God's judgment. We can go all the way back to Exodus and the Lord's hand, it speaks of falling upon Egypt in judgment because of the calling out of his people and the plagues that he brings. And it speaks of the hand of the Lord there. In Deuteronomy, the hand of the Lord is set against enemies of the Israelites. In the book of Judges, when, when Israel is the one that is rebelling, that is turning to idolatry, it says that the hand of the Lord was now against the Israelite army when they went out to war. It was again an act of judgment, and it's a demonstration of God's judgment that the hand of the Lord is against them. In the New Testament, the writer of Hebrews picks up on this very Old Testament theme in, in, in the Jewish understanding of the Lord's hand when he writes, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. There's also in, in, in the Old Testament the use of God's hand in term of, terms of favor and blessing. We see it in the book of Ezra when there is the preparation to, to go back into Jerusalem and to rebuild. And, and it speaks of Ezra in chapter 7 and 8. There's a number of instances where it talks about Ezra experiencing the hand of the Lord and giving him favor before the king of Persia. And so in that case, it's, a, it's an act of God's blessing. Ezekiel was blessed by the hand of the Lord. So throughout the Old Testament, there's this idea of the, the strong hand of the Lord that can rest upon some in judgment when it is God's wrath that is being poured out, but also the hand of the Lord on his people in terms of his favor. Today, we're going to see both in this section in Isaiah that we're in. We're going to be in section uh, that is the middle of chapter 9 through the end of chapter 12 is, is where we'll be this morning. And that is the conclusion to a, a larger piece that would be chapter 7 through 12. If you recall, when we started, I said chapters 1 through 6 present really the introduction to Isaiah, and then 7 through 12 are kind of the next major unit. And then from here, he'll turn to dealing with other nations, the nations surrounding Israel, and that'll take us largely through the, the balance this spring when we get through chapter 39. If you think back to a couple of weeks ago when we were in chapter 7, 8 in the beginning of 9, one of the uh, teaching means that Isaiah was using was was names and births of sons. So he refers to his own sons and their names, and he uses that as sort of trying to create a teachable moment for the king of Judah. He talks in chapter 7 about this one who will be born, who is Emmanuel, who is God with us. And then in chapter 9, when he paints this picture of great hope, of light that pierces the darkness, of, of deliverance that comes for those who are oppressed, he says, the means by which that happens is, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and speaks of the wonderful counselor. At verse 8 of chapter 9, then, the tone shifts. So we move that beginning part of chapter 9, where it's this looking forward eagerly to the coming of the wonderful counselor and mighty God. He shifts again in Isaiah 9, verse 8. And, and we've seen this now, if you've been tracking along in Isaiah, you've seen this sort of cyclical motion of, the sin of the people is identified, the judgment of God upon that sin is prophesied, and then there is the hope that there will be redemption of a remnant. There is an exclamation point on the fact that this is not the end of the story at this point of judgment. And so we see this cycle again. I'm going to read just part of Isaiah chapter 9 this morning and, and, and show you a pattern that you'll see through the rest of the chapter. Isaiah 9, beginning in verse 8. The Lord has sent a word against Jacob, and it will fall on Israel, 
And all the people will know, Ephraim and the inhabitants of Samaria, who say in pride and in arrogance of heart, the bricks have fallen, but we will build with dressed stones. The sycamores have been cut down, but we will put cedars in their place. But the Lord raises the adversaries of resin against him and stirs up his enemies, the Syrians on the east, the Philistines on the west, devour Israel with open mouth. For all this, his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. From here, Isaiah 9, 8, through the end of Isaiah 9, and then into the beginning of Isaiah 10. Often we're reminded of the fact that chapter breaks, verse numbers, all added later. Isaiah presents this as a, as a vision, and so the, the chapter break between 9 and 10 is, again, not an ideal one. But there's essentially from 9, 8 down to 10, 4, four units, four sort of um, vignettes, if you will, but they're all prophetic pieces that all end with the same language, which says, for all this, his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. You see that um, at the end of each section. So you've got 9, 8 through 12, you've got 13 through 17, you've got verses 18 to 21, and then chapter 10, 1 through 4, and that ends again in verse 4. For all this, his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. Let's think about these four units in, in terms of the historical setting and what it is that Isaiah's doing as, as he's saying this. What, what does this mean prophetically in terms of the history at that time? You've got a map there in the, in the sermon notes, and we'll throw it up on the screen for you as well. Judah is that small little area, mostly brown area down there um, along the Mediterranean. Jerusalem being the capital of Judah, this is where Isaiah's ministry largely is, but he's also focusing somewhat on, on Israel, which would be the nation just above Judah. This map, for some reason, doesn't actually identify the nation of Israel, but it mentions the capital at this point, which is Samaria. So you've got Judah, you move up and you come to Israel, and then the nation above that is Syria, with its capital of Damascus. Remember again, set aside, there's Syria, smaller nation, then there's the Assyrian Empire, that's the, the large portion that starts in that purple area around Ashur and Nineveh. That's where the, the Assyrian Empire was born. And by military might, they have expanded and expanded and expanded and are taking over more and more land. They are the, the giant of that day. In the midst of all this, what we've read back in chapters 6, 7, and 8 is that there is a there's a growing fear by smaller countries of the Assyrian Empire. And so in particular, Syria and Israel, the two northernmost, they are about to be invaded next. And so they form an alliance and try to bring Judah into that alliance. Judah, for whatever reasons, does not comply. And so Syria and Israel set out to attack Judah and Jerusalem. It's at that point where we picked up um, and, and by the way, I should point out on the map where it says conquered by Sennacherib in 701, which speaks of Judah. It's probably an overstatement when we get later on into Isaiah chapter 36. We're going to see they really were not conquered. They were attacked, but God kept Judah from being fully conquered by the Assyrians. But at this point in time, when we picked up in Isaiah chapter 6, you have the prophet Isaiah going to the king of Judah. King of Judah is under threat. Israel and Syria are allied against him. They're going to attack him. Prophet goes to Ahaz, and you remember this when we talked about it. He says, don't fear. Don't panic. Don't be foolish. Don't overreact to this whole thing, king. Trust God. God rules. God will deliver you. You need to rest in him. 
Just be still and rest. You remember the story when we looked at it, Ahaz is foolish, he does not listen. Instead, Ahaz has the bright idea to take gold and silver from the treasury in Jerusalem, have a courier take it on up to the area of Nineveh, that, that area where the, the Assyrian Empire is based, the governing body up there, and essentially bribe, pay off, ask for, pay for protection. Go to the Assyrian Empire, the one that you know is the most dangerous threat, and say, listen, these two little countries are coming against me. Would you protect us? Essentially paying them to do what, what Assyria wants to do anyway, which is destroy countries and take them. And he's now just giving them more money to, to protect. He is foolishly disobeying God. He is distrusting God. All right. That's all our background here. Here's how this feeds in now to these, these units I'm talking about in chapter 9 and into chapter 10. When, he does, when Isaiah goes to Ahaz, we know it's roughly 735, 734 B.C. Syria does fall in 732. So just a couple of years later, the Assyrian Empire comes and they capture Syria and Damascus and they begin to attack the northern part of Israel, the northernmost territories, but don't yet proceed fully into Israel, the capital of Israel still standing, Samaria. And so there's a, a period there until 722 when Israel's finally taken. There's a period there of about 10 years when King Ahaz, in his mind, feels like a diplomatic genius because it's worked. It, from, all, from all you can tell at this point, what he has done in paying off the Assyrian Empire, has gotten the protection that he paid for. Syria has been defeated. Israel has been threatened enough that it has backed off. And, and they are standing. The Jewish people are standing. And so there's a sense here in which even the government of Israel and certainly the people of Judah are falling into the trap of saying, we did it. We, we figured it out. We, we got it. We accomplished it. We did it. And for King Ahaz, this is probably a misguided sense of vindication. Isaiah had said, wait on the Lord. Ahaz went ahead and he enacted his own plan, and he is probably feeling pretty good about it. That's where these warnings here at the end of 9 and beginning of 10 come in. Because these are speaking to a people who somehow think, we got it. I mean, God must be on our side because it all worked out. And what he says, the unit that we just read, where he's talking to Samaria, when he speaks of Ephraim and Samaria, Ephraim being another name for Israel, this is God saying, I know you think you're really strong. I know what your attitude is right now. Your attitude is, they can knock down our buildings. We'll build new ones. We'll build better ones. They knock down our bricks. We'll use dressed stones, it says. They cut down our trees. We'll, build, we'll plant stronger trees because we're tough. We can do this. And that's, that's God now condemning the attitude of Israel and certainly the attitude that penetrates Judah that says, I don't really need this protection thing that, that Isaiah came and said that God would give. We don't need to rest in God because we've done it. And, and it goes all the way down through 10.4, and each section sort of builds on the other. First, it's to Samaria and your arrogance and your pride, and then the second section, 13 through 17, is you've, you've trusted entirely in foolish human leaders. You've put all your hope in guys like King Ahaz, and you're sitting there thinking right now, we got the best king because he was really smart and he paid for our protection. And you are falling into this trap of trusting in unjust judges and leaders who are evil. 
He goes on in that last section of chapter 9 to talk about the wickedness that consumes the Jewish people at this time, that they are not just tolerating, but it is burning through them and it, it is destroying them. But, but they're out, they're, their feeling is, we're fine. We're doing okay. And then down into chapter 10, when he starts with woe to those who decree iniquitous decrees and writers who keep writing oppression, he now says, here's, here's what all this looks like. When you, you, you adore these ungodly leaders and you revel in sin, you get leaders who oppress the poor, who lead for their own self-interest. It, it's all about what I can gain. It's all about selfish, sinful gain. And that's why each of these four sections, remember the circumstances. They're sitting there thinking, we're good. Everything looks fine, and that's why each of these sections, God's, it says God's anger is not turned away and his hand is still stretched out against you. It is the prophet saying, if you foolishly think that somehow you're in the clear on this and your strength and your wisdom have gotten you into safety, you better know that you have not turned away God's anger and that his hand is still stretched out against you. There's nothing new under the sun. This, this arrogance that Isaiah is preaching against in 735 BC is just as alive and well today. That same sort of attitude that says, we're fine, we're, we're civilized, we're, we're, we're smarter than, than our ancestors, we've got better technology. If, if we need a God, we just need one of those sort of non-judgy gods who gives us stuff, but, but really we don't need God because we're good. Everything's fine. Look at how we're doing. We, we just want a God who blesses. Give me that kind of God. And scripture says, my hand is still stretched out against you because of your evil. Galatians 6, 7, do not be deceived. God is not mocked for whatever one sows, that will he also reap. The, the, the message here is, you think you just build new. You'll just plant new. You'll just keep having these sinful leaders. I am here to tell you, and this is what God is saying through Isaiah, Israel will be judged. Samaria will be taken. Judah, you've got a little bit more time, but because your sin will continue to increase, it'll be a nation called Babylon that will take you, and God's judgment will be borne out against you because God's truth stands. God's hand remains stretched out against those who defiantly say, I don't need you. I don't really want you and all that you are telling me to do. I want some kind of light, God. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revelers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. In, in context, in 1 Corinthians, that, that's the passage that goes on to say, and such were some of you, but you've been washed and you've been sanctified. It's incredibly encouraging saying to a people who live in a sinful city, those of you who are trusting in Christ, you're not this anymore because you've been delivered. But it's also a profound warning that if you persist in these things, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. This is God still saying, this is, don't, don't confuse sort of Old Testament, New Testament God as if he's different. He is the same God. And so the same God who says, my hand is stretched out against you and my anger is not averted is the same God who says, you will not inherit the kingdom of God if you persist in rebelling against me and carrying on in sin. If you think you can dismiss God's word, if you think you can flaunt your sin and do as you please, then please listen to 8th century BC Jewish life and what God is saying to them. Because they are laughing at God's word and saying, hm, what's he talking about? L look, 
It's all working just as according to plan. If you, if you look to the world and to circumstances, your circumstances, to define God, you'll get it wrong every time. Because what we, what we do as human beings, if, if, we're, if we do it that way, then it's, if life is good, God is good. If life is hard, then maybe it's God. Maybe God's not so good. And that, that's what's going on here is this idea that we're all good. So any concern about God is, is taken care of because he's clearly blessing us in the midst of this. Don't look at circumstances to define God. Look at God's word to define God. That's where God has revealed himself. That's where he's shown himself to us. And that's where we see that he is the Lord who says how things are. The Lord is God, and as Isaiah will say, there is none like him. There's one other piece that will come up in chapter 10. Uh, Foolish sort of worldly thinking, but I would argue in some sense understandable thinking, how, how people can at least think this way. It's the idea that when you see widespread suffering and evil in the world, those who are unbelievers will often question, where's God? Where is your God in this? Where is this just God? Where is this God of rescue? When there is all this turmoil and violence and hatred, some are inclined to doubt the very existence of God. And for some, in the 8th century BC, the Assyrian army is the, is the argument for that kind of thinking. Understanding how Assyria did warfare and, and the, the level of violence and terror that they caused would cause some to look and go, where is God in the midst of this? We are today rightly appalled when we see innocent, unarmed civilians attacked and bombed. We are rightly appalled when we see innocent countrymen who are attacked and killed and, and, and for unjust reasons, when they are killed by violence. It, it, it's awful. The Assyrians make some of what we see today look small in comparison. The Assyrians are often credited with being the ones who sort of created at least the, the early practice of crucifixion and early form of it, because their, their attitude in defeating enemies was, was not just you, you, you beat them and you kill and you imprison. The, the attitude is we want to terrorize people. We want other nations to see what we do to our victims so that they won't even raise arms against us. And so they would take victims and have mass executions where they would impale live victims and leave them suffering for days to die as a public warning. You can... I'm not encouraging you to do this, but you can certainly Google Assyrian warfare and, and, and you just see that they, they thrived on torturing thousands of people and just doing horrific things. And so the fact that the Assyrians, from an earthly perspective, seemed to rule the world of that day, you can understand how it would cause some people to go, where is God? Why doesn't he stop them? That's what chapter 10, the balance of chapter 10 is speaking to, starting in verse 12 of Isaiah chapter 10. When the Lord has finished his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, he will punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the, kings, uh, the king of Assyria and the boastful look in his eyes. Stop there a minute. I, I love the language there when he has finished his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem as if God's just doing a little bit of renovation work in Jerusalem. What, what he's saying there is when God has finished punishing his own people, 
when he has held his own people accountable, the same people who, who have been the benefit, their ancestors of being taken out of Egypt and, and, and delivered and being placed in the promised land and being protected on all sides and being blessed and who then rebelled against him and turned to idolatry when he has finished dealing with them, Assyria, you're up next and he will punish you. And, and, and what he begins to describe here is how God uses nations like Assyria as instruments in his hand, as instruments in this case of punishment. And so he pictures Assyria like an ax that is in the hand of a lumberjack. So verse 15, shall the ax boast over him who hews with it, or, or the saw magnify itself against him who wields it, as if a rod should wield him who lifts it, or as if a staff should lift him who is not wood. What 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 Isaiah is saying is, Assyria, you are an instrument that God used for a very specific purpose. Now you have been arrogant and proud and you somehow think it's all about you. You think that the ax is stronger than the lumberjack who lifts the ax, as if the ax could somehow accomplish anything by itself. It just sits there, it does nothing. It's the one who swings the ax, it's the one who you must be terrified of because he is the one who is holy and just. And righteous. And, and, and so what he's describing here is Assyria, you are like an axe or a saw or a, or a rod. You are an instrument in God's hands that God used for a season to bring punishment to his people so that they would turn and repent and run back to their God and realize they don't want to be playing dip, diplomacy with the, the enemies of the world and with the other nations. They want to be worshiping God as they're called to do. That's, that's the point that he brings this punishment upon them. The irony is the Assyrians are boasting about their own power. So verse 13, it says that, speaking of the Assyrian king, he says, by the strength of my hand, I've done it. And by my wisdom, for I have understanding. I've done it. This is just like Nebuchadnezzar in, in, in Babylon, just that same attitude of look what I have done. And so arrogant Assyria seems to be getting away with such evil. But the point of Isaiah chapter 10 is to say, no, they are working within the prescribed limits and boundaries of God. And so when you get down to verses 16 to 19, God is promising Assyria's destruction by disease and by fire. This is unimaginable. In, in, in that era, that the singular great empire of that day, that Isaiah is now saying, will be decimated. They will be ruined and there will be nothing left. And in fact, in the description, he speaks of the light of Israel still burning. So Assyria will be wiped out. Israel, that small little nation, will still flicker. There will still be a remnant of flame there because God is preserving. Look down at verse 32 at the end of chapter 10. And, and this is... He, he's just, in verses 28 through 31, has just sort of given a geographic lesson of the Assyrian army, and he's pictured them marching through these cities and coming south as if coming toward Jerusalem. And then verse 32. This very day, he will halt at Nob. He will shake his fist at the mount of the daughter of Zion, the hill of Jerusalem. Let's just stop there. See what's being pictured here. So here's the Assyrian army. We are going to take Jerusalem and take Judah and they get to the boundary that God has prescribed, and all they can do is stand there and shake their fist at Jerusalem, and they can do nothing to penetrate Jerusalem. We're, again, we'll see this in, in Isaiah 36, how God protects Jerusalem from the Assyrian army. But, but the point that Isaiah is saying here is they are going no closer than God has allowed them. 
God has established this boundary, and they may shake their fist, but then look at the next verse, verse 33. Behold, look, the Lord God of hosts will lop the boughs with terrifying power. The great in height will be hewn down. The lofty will be brought low. He will cut down the thickets of the forest with an ax, and Lebanon will fall by the majestic one. This is God's word saying, you know that notorious army that, that terrorized everyone around? There is a terrifying power that's greater than them, and it is the power of the Lord of hosts. And when he swings his axe, he will chop the Assyrian empire down, and it will fall like a tree. It will crash to the ground, and it will be done. Assyria would march to a boundary established by God, and God himself would assure that the Assyrian empire thinking itself to be the axe that destroys everything in its way, would be the one that would be chopped down and destroyed in the end. God despises human confidence that is not based fully on dependence on him. When we take this, this attitude as the, the, the king of Assyria, by the strength of my hand and my wisdom I do this, we are asking for the judgment of God. 1 Corinthians 10, 12, let let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. It is dangerous to think that you can stand without God. It is foolish to think that you can accomplish all that you set out to do while rejecting your creator and his truth. It is utter rebellion to act as if you are Lord over your own life. That's what got Israel and eventually Judah and ultimately the Assyrian Empire punished. God brings down his terrifying power against man's evil. If you are foolish enough to build your life on your strength and your wisdom, then I can assure you based on God's word, when the rains of hardship fall on your life, everything will go flat at some point because God will not compete with you for supremacy over your life and for lordship. Isaiah so has used now this, this illustration of tree chopping before. So this is what moves us into chapter 11. And, and it should be reminiscent to us, the idea that God would cut down a tree. Uh, there it says at the end of chapter 10, he will cut down the thickets of the forest with an ax and Lebanon will fall by the majestic one. That sort of leveled forest should sound familiar. If you've ever seen where forestry done in the clear cut area where it's just stumps that, that are there. That, that's sort of the picture that he's trying to give here. And so God taking Assyria down to a field of stumps should remind us of Isaiah chapter 6, where he spoke the same in terms of the judgment that would come upon the Jewish people. He's talking there more about Babylon and what Babylon's going to bring, but that, that, that's where they will be taken into exile and the land decimated. If you remember this, Isaiah 6 verse 13, as God is judging the land of Judah, it says, and even if a tenth of the land remains, it will be burned again terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled, the holy seed is its stump. Remember that from chapter 6. Now, keep that in mind as we come to chapter 11, because we were left with this picture amongst the, 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 the remaining land in Jerusalem of this, this stump, and out of it was coming this seed, something, something that might produce life. So then you get to chapter 11. Let's read the first five verses. It says, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from its roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge 
and the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. What we've been seeing in Isaiah, one of the, the consistent themes has been when you submit yourselves to ungodly rulers, speaking to, to, to the Jewish people, when you allow before you evil judges and evil kings and you adore these rulers, then you can expect them to commit evil against you. You can expect them to be self-serving and you can expect them to be unjust and you can expect all the violence and the hatred because they are out to serve their own interests. There is, there is no wise counsel. There, is no, there are no just judges. None is righteous. This is all the kind of language then that, that Paul picks up in Romans 3 when he says, there is none righteous, not one. All have turned aside. They've all turned to worship the God of self. And when you do that, there's violence and hatred and there's no peace. And society calls evil good and good evil. That's what we've been seeing so far in Isaiah is, is these kind of warnings. And then you come to here in Isaiah 11. And God says, remember the stump? There's coming from that, there's coming a ruler who will be unlike any ruler that you have ever known. There will be one who will sit on the throne. And in fact, it's, it's so interesting that he uses the language of shoot from the stump of Jesse. He doesn't even say the Davidic throne at this point. He doesn't refer to the Davidic line. It, it's David's line in the sense that Jesse is David's father. So it's the same line, but it's almost as if to say, all those, those kings who sat on the throne of David, some of, some of whom have been decent, some have been adequate, some have been downright awful and evil, no comparison. This one is, is unlike any of them. When, when this one rules, it will be so different you cannot compare his rule with theirs. This one will descend from the line of David, but he will be as different from them as light is from darkness because he will possess a kind of wisdom and knowledge and counsel that is unlike anything any human has ever possessed. David had great might. Solomon had great wisdom. Kings like Hezekiah, there's, there's some good attributes. They, they had some good things that they did. But this coming king, he delights in the fear of the Lord. He is, he is righteousness personified. In fact, the, the picture that he gives here of, of him judging in verse 3, his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. That should stop us in our tracks because when you go into a courtroom, everything is decided based on evidence you can see and testimony you can hear. That's how we make judgments is based on what we see in here. And here it says, he shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear because he's, he's talking about a king whose own innate, innate knowledge of man's heart allows him to judge based on the heart of the man because he knows us intimately, because he is God in flesh. This ruler is the Messiah. And he judges rightly, not only does he see the heart and judges the heart, but he judges rightly because he is righteousness. 
because everything about him is righteousness. So he will decide with equity for the meek and strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. Righteousness will be the belt of his waist, faithfulness the belt of his loins. Everything about him will be just and righteous. And it is, it is in light of that coming king that we move into the passage that we read last week, which was from Isaiah 11, verses six through nine, which is this time of incredible tranquility on earth, like the world has, has never seen. It got a glimpse in the infant days of the Garden of Eden of, of, of what the world could look like. And now he is saying, when this one comes, this one that sprouts from the root stump of Jesse, and he reigns with righteousness and justice and peace, when the wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father and prince of peace is on the throne, in that day, there will be peace, unlike we have ever known. But he says one more thing in chapter 11, how in that day, this holy judge who stretched out his hand in righteousness and judgment will stretch out his hand again. See this in, in verse 11, Isaiah 11, verse 11. In that day, the Lord will extend his hand. Every time we've seen it so far, it's been terrifying. In that day, the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pethros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath, and from the coastlands of the sea. He will raise a signal for the nations and will assemble the banished of Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. The jealousy of Ephraim shall depart and those who harass Judah shall be cut off. Ephraim shall not be jealous of Judah and Judah shall not harass Ephraim. Amen is right. Because that is a glorious scene. Here is the Messiah. The same king who extends his hand in judgment on those who rebel against him. Now it says, as he extends his hand, it is the merciful call to summon his people from the four corners of the earth. He is summoning his people to himself to come and enter into his kingdom and to be with him. When verse 11 says there that he extends it a second time, it, it, it could allude back to what we read in chapter nine. I would suggest it probably has more to do the idea of the exile out of Egypt was the first time because when you get down to the end of the chapter, he's talking about the Israelites being brought out, out, of, out of Egypt. He extended his hand once to call his people from out of Egypt and into the promised land, and when he extends it again, he will call peoples from all nations. This will be even greater, and he will draw them to himself. In verse 14, it even recalls the, the, the Red Sea being parted so that the people could, could go through, uh, 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 verse 15 actually, I should say, and, and how he will then in this day, in this exile, he will destroy the sea because he is making a pathway. He's making a highway from Egypt, from Syria, from all over that will bring the exiles of the earth. God's people will no longer be scattered as exiles, but we will be brought into his kingdom to live in the presence of our king. And the divisions of his people Going all the way back to, he uses Ephraim and Judah here, going all the way back to what happened after Solomon when the nation divides. Those divisions, he says, are done. No more jealousy, no more harassment. It is a people of God who have come together as one to worship their king. If you recall last week, when we just took a, just sort of a side path for a few minutes on the idea of the end times and how this fits in terms of the millennium and the eternal state. Let me just read you a quote from a commentator that I think helps you to see what, why I did what I did last week and how that fits into here. Andrew Davis writes, whether these verses, 
part of chapter 11 with this time of tranquility and peace. Whether these verses refer to the millennium or the eternal state, they will most certainly be literally fulfilled in Christ's future kingdom, a kingdom of almost indescribable tranquility. The consummation of that kingdom is captured powerfully in verse 9. The land will be as full of the knowledge of the Lord as the sea is filled with water. No longer studying how to kill one another or feed their own lusts, redeemed sinners will study the Lord's glory in all aspects of a magnificent creation. That's our hope. That's what we, that's what we look forward to. If you are trusting in Jesus Christ this morning, that is what we are glimpsing by faith through the eyes of Isaiah to that day when that, our king comes again and establishes this peace and we will see him and we will hear his voice and we will live in this peace in his kingdom. I, I say this to you because I know there's moments when you're reading the book of Isaiah and you're meditating on the book of Isaiah and you're going, oh, evil and war and sin and anger and fighting and all of this stuff. We'll stop here in chapter 12 and just look with me for a moment forward at what Isaiah is saying to us. Your Messiah is coming. And there is hope in him because he is the prince of peace and he will rule with perfect righteousness and judgment. He is your hope. And our response to that is what chapter 12 is all about. It's a short chapter. I just want you to look at part of it here with me because in very deeply personal words, Isaiah, having, having looked forward to the coming of the Messiah, now says you will say in that day. He's now saying, here's, here's how we respond. I just want you to read this with me out loud in unison. I'm going to put it up on the screen here. Um, Isaiah 12, 1 and 2. Let's just read these verses together and, and just take this, if you're trusting in Christ, take this to heart as you say this. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. Did you hear that? The, the same God who we read in chapter 9, his anger is not turned away. His anger is not appeased. You, you think that you're doing it your circumstances are great, and his anger is not turned away. If you are trusting in Jesus Christ this morning, that is your song. His anger has been turned away. Listen, we, we can look at the Assyrians, we can Google them and say, oh man, what terrible people. But, but listen, in our thoughts, we're no different. We may never have committed the, the level of violence that, that the Assyrians did, but in our thoughts toward other people, we're right there. We're, we're, no, we're no more deserving. Not, none are. We didn't do anything to earn God's favor. We're like the, the, the people of Judah and the people of Israel. We've, we've been prideful and arrogant. And, and God, in his grace, sent his son, Jesus Christ, to rescue us from our sins so that his anger might be turned back from us. This, this chapter is the end of a section that begins in, with chapter 7, with with Isaiah going to Ahaz and saying, Ahaz, this is really simple, brother. Trust him. Trust God for your salvation. Just, just throw yourself at him, and he will save you. Don't be afraid. Don't let your heart be faint. God is saying to you right now, trust me, and I will save you. 
And Ahaz failed the test miserably. I'll do it myself. So here's my, my exhortation to you and I this morning. If you are trusting in Jesus Christ as Savior, praise God. This is your hope and this is your future. And, and, and we, we should worship and give him thanks just as, as Isaiah 12 is doing. But I also want to, I want to ask you the question when it comes to the, the daily stuff. Are you trusting him to guard you and keep you and carry you through the, the circumstances of life? Are you trusting him with the, the illness, with the job loss, or with the terrible boss, or with the broken family relationship, or with whatever is going wrong? Are you trusting him? Is he your song and your salvation? And do you believe that, that just like Isaiah would, would plead with you, don't be afraid. He's good. Just trust him and rest in him. Because whatever the world or the evildoers or Satan has devised against you, he is saying, I am with you. I am your strength and your song and your salvation. Look at, look, look at the rest of, of the, this chapter. Verse three, with joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And you will say in that day, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Proclaim that his name is exalted. Sing praises to the Lord, for he has done glorious. Let, let this be made known in all the earth. Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. We who have been redeemed are called to trust in him for the daily stuff in life, because that's part of our worship of him. That's part of our proclamation to those around us that he's good. We trust him. The Holy One is good, and we rest in him. And he holds us. And his hand that was outstretched in anger is now his hand that holds. And so Jesus said it in John 10, and we'll end with, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. That hand, the powerful hand of God, is the hand that this morning, if you were trusting in Jesus Christ, holds you firmly in its grip and gives you reason for hope and trust and proceeding forward in great confidence in the Holy One. Let's pray. Lord God, Isaiah has for us in your word given us vivid pictures of not two different gods, but a God who is just and holy and who abhors evil and who punishes sin and who does not allow arrogance and pride and rebellion to persist but who brings down the arrogant. But we've also seen that it is your character and your nature to redeem a remnant for your glory, to rescue. And that same hand of judgment is the raised hand that signals to the nations, I'm calling you to come and to find forgiveness and mercy in Jesus Christ. Thank you that the wrath and the judgment is satisfied in the perfection and righteousness of a Savior who suffered in our place on the cross. Thank you that in Jesus' death, he takes on himself our sin to take the punishment we deserve 
so that we might be declared righteous. Thank you that your just anger against all of us as we came into life, we were rebels doing our own thing, unwilling to bow before you, not wanting to to be taught from your word or have you be Lord. Thank you that all who are here this morning and who have put their hope and trust fully in Jesus Christ, that your anger has been turned back and you have brought comfort to us. That there is peace and hope, not just now, but something coming that lies ahead of us that, that even for Isaiah, it was still something he, he longed to understand even better. We've now seen, we know this Emmanuel, this Jesus, but we sit right alongside Isaiah and looking forward to that day when the reign of Jesus Christ will finally bring to this broken world peace and a kingdom of righteousness and justice. Lord, strengthen us to do the work of ministry in the days between now and then. Help us to to love righteousness and justice, to not grow weary in pushing for those things, pressing for truth and righteousness and justice, but also we pray that you would fill us with your spirit, that we would show to the nations who Jesus is, that he is their hope, that he is the one who can save. And Lord, we... We eagerly await your coming, Lord Jesus, and your kingdom. We look forward with great gladness to the day of your rule. Lord, uphold us by your grace. Thank you for holding us in your hand. We pray these things for your glory and your fame. In Jesus' name, amen.